the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see you that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better 
than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mindy. As you can tell, she worked hard on those names. That's right. Very appropriate. Ministering to us that way. Daniel is a 6th century B.C. prophet. He's writing for Jewish exiles who have been exiled to a place called Babylon in modern-day Iraq. These exiles have been kicked out of their homeland, taken prisoner to a foreign land. They're disillusioned and discouraged. They're suffering and they're hurting. And instead of preaching to them as a prophet would normally do, Daniel provides stories and visions. That's the structure of this book. First half stories, second half visions. We're beginning the half with these famous stories. Kids, kids, you are probably familiar with these stories, are you not? Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace. The, the handwriting on the wall. Daniel in the lion's den. You probably know these stories. So kids, by way of introduction to Daniel, let's ask, why stories? Why stories for a suffering people? Why? Well, think about the power of story. A pastor named Walter Langren writes about a woman in his church whose son had destroyed his mind with drug use and was now in prison. The mother asked Wangren if, she, if he would visit her son, and he did. But when Wangren arrived, he met a man who was completely catatonic, unable to have the simplest of conversations. And he thought, I can't have a rational conversation with this man. What will I do? And then he thought to himself, I know. I'll tell him one of the gospel stories in the Bible. Weak after week, Wangren returned to the prison and read this man a story from Scripture. Eventually the man was moved to another facility and they lost touch. And then one day the phone rang in the church office. It was the operator at the prison where this man had been transferred. She asked Wangren, could you take a few minutes and talk with this man? Wangren replied, can he talk? You mean he can talk? She replied, yes, he can. He said, put, her on, uh, put him on, put him on. And Wangren heard, would you tell me a story? Would you please tell me another story? That's the power of story. Like Life, life is like these, that situation for these exiles. Life is like that. They're imprisoned, in effect, taken captive. They're in a catatonic state, spiritually speaking. They're depressed. They're discouraged. They feel hopeless, I'm sure. But in hearing and reading about Daniel, would they not say, would you please tell me another story? Because these are powerful stories as vehicles for truth about God. Vehicles for truth 
about the living God that these exiles needed to know and hear and truth about God that you and I need to know and hear. In these stories, you're going to find vital truth about God week after week. And so I hope you keep coming to Daniel in this first half of the book saying, please tell me another story, Daniel. That's the power of story by way of introduction. But there's a danger in these stories as well. A danger. The danger is to make the main point of the story mainly about Daniel and the imitation of Daniel's life. The dare to be a Daniel approach when Daniel is not the ultimate hero of these stories. God is. God is the main character of the book. God is the hero on every page. We should learn from Daniel's life. We're going to learn from Daniel's life. But we should mostly see God's character and God's activity on every page. So there is power here. There's a danger to be aware of. And also I want to highlight a structure. You're going to find a structure. These stories, like most stories that you've read, have a plot. And almost invariably, the plot goes like this for any story, including these stories. There's a setting, and then there's some rising tension, a problem of some kind. Then there's a climax, a turning point, and then there's a resolution of the tension or problem. And that's the structure we're going to see this morning. There's a, a setting, there's some tension, and then a climax and resolution. So first the setting. Let's call it exiles in a foreign land. First the setting. Exiles in a foreign land. The year is 605 BC. The superpower of the day, the Babylonian Empire, has invaded your little country, Israel. You're part of the nobility, the cream of the crop, but you're ripped from your home, ripped from your family, taken away in the first wave of exiles to Babylon. Taken away to be groomed as a Babylonian, to serve the Babylonian kings. You have no choice. You're required to serve your captors in a pagan, secular society. You're given a new name. No longer Daniel, which means God is my judge. Now Belteshazzar, named after one of the Babylonian gods. But there's a bigger picture here taking place in this setting. Look back to verse 2. Verse 2 says, And the Lord gave, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his, Nebuchadnezzar's hand, the Babylonian king, with, notice, with some of the vessels of the house of God, the temple in Jerusalem. And he brought those things, the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem, he brought them to the land of Shinar, notice, to the house of his God. Nebuchadnezzar takes items from God's temple to the land of Shinar. Now, in the book of Genesis, you might recall, Shinar is the place where they built the Tower of Babel, a place of rebellion against God. 
So that should tell us something. And Nebuchadnezzar brings these items dedicated to God into the temple of his God. So the setting, the setting is not just historical, it's theological. It's a conflict between Israel's God and the Babylonian gods. And the question from the outset is, who is really in control? Who is really running the show? Who is really sovereign? That is the main theme of the book of Daniel. Who is really sovereign? Who is really ruling and reigning over all? Well, of course, verse 2 clues us into the real situation, doesn't it? The Lord gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Now, those exiles need to learn that lesson. That their God, the living God, is running the show. And he is still accomplishing his purposes sovereignly among them. And friends, we must learn the same lesson. No, we're not an exile in Babylon. But we are exiles in this world, the Bible tells us. The New Testament writers Peter and James both describe the Christian life as a life of exile. The book of Philippians tells us that our citizenship ultimately is not here, it's in heaven. The book of Hebrews says we are pilgrims, sojourners, and exiles. Exiles traveling to another city. Traveling to a city whose designer and builder is God himself. So the Christian is an exile in this world. And as exiles, we need to know who's really in charge around here. Who or what determines what really happens in our lives and in this world? Is it powerful governments? Rulers, dictators, and presidents? Does the course of world history hinge on each election? 2020, 2024, etc. Or, or is an absolutely sovereign God ruling and reigning over everything at every moment? The book of Daniel wants to shape us on that issue. That's the setting. What about the tension? Well, secondly, let's call the, the rising tension faithfulness in a foreign land. Let's give it a title. Faithfulness. Faithfulness in a foreign land. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself, not, not contaminate himself with the king's food, or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself. Now, we don't, we don't exactly know why Daniel believed he would be defiled by the king's food and wine. It might be that he was concerned that those foods would violate the law of Moses. God had set his people aside, in part, through the foods they ate and didn't eat. So, for instance, no pork 
And maybe Daniel knew the Babylonians loved Kansas City pulled pork barbecue. <laughs> or, or maybe Daniel assumed that these foods would be offered first to the Babylonian gods and their idols. And so he felt he'd be defiled that way. We're not sure. Either way, either way, the bottom line is Daniel is seeking to remain distinct. Distinct as part of God's people in exile. And the text points in this direction. We can't quite tell this in our English Bibles, but both verse 7 and verse 8 begin with the same Hebrew verb. Verse 7 literally says, He, the chief eunuch, placed on them, placed on them names. And he placed on Daniel, Belteshazzar. And then verse 8 immediately says, He, Daniel, placed on his heart that he would not defile himself. Do you hear the connection? Verse 7, the man places on them names. In response, Daniel places on his heart, I'm not going to eat this food. In other words, you can change my name. I will not let you change my identity. You can take my name. You will not touch my distinctness as one of God's people. In other words, a line had to be drawn somewhere. Daniel draws it with the food and asks not to be allowed to uh, eat the king's food. It is a risky move. This is dangerous. But we read in verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and compassion. And with favor and compassion from God, Daniel approaches the steward who has been directly assigned to them, verse 12, and says, I've got an idea. Test your service for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. Do a comparison. And deal with your servants according to what you see. And the steward agrees to this little test. Now, it's interesting. By chapter 10, it appears that Daniel has not been on this diet for some time. So, friends, the issue for us is not going on the Daniel diet. The issue is not going vegan, as fine as that may be. The point here is faithfulness in exile. Daniel is seeking to be faithful to his God and faithful to his identity, distinct as one of God's people. And you face the same issue if you belong to the same God. We know that foods don't defile us today. And I doubt that you are concerned about foods being offered to Babylonian idols. You probably didn't wrestle with that at breakfast today. But we must be faithfully distinct as God's people in exile in this world. I would suggest there are two extremes to, I think I would call them errors for Christians in relating to this world. One is the fortress approach. 
build high walls around us, dig a deep moat, keep that world out as much as possible, wall off our lives, wall off our lives from lost people and a fallen society, live a parallel Christian universe in a hermetically sealed life as much as we can. The other extreme we could call the chameleon approach. On the one hand, the fortress approach. On the other, the chameleon approach. The chameleon is famous for being able to match its surroundings in ways, to reflect the branches or leaves on which it is sitting, and we can do the same. Just blend in. Never stand out. Live our lives like we're wearing spiritual camouflage. Now, Daniel doesn't have the fortress approach available to him, but he is a word against the chameleon approach. He is a word against spiritual camouflage. Daniel reminds us of Jesus' word that his disciples, his disciples are in this world, not of this world, not belonging to this world. I think the New Testament equivalent of Daniel 1 might be found in 1 John chapter 2 when he says, do not love the world, a world opposed to God, a world hostile to God. So ask yourself, would those who know you well say, you're in this world, but clearly not wedded to this world's values and priorities? Would those who know you well say, you are faithfully distinct in this world? That you're faithfully distinct in how you live, in your lifestyle, the ethical decisions you make, the ethics you embrace. Would they say your, your life, your ethics, are defined more by popular culture, a fear of being canceled by the winds and waves of preference or by what the living God says. Would those who know you well say you're distinct, faithfully distinct in this world or, or maybe look more like this world in the area of sexuality? giving yourself to pornography or living in a fantasy world fantasizing about people who are not your spouse or would they say you're reflecting more of this world's values and how you relate to money and possessions and finances would they if they were honest with you say it seems like you're pretty much in love with money and primarily devoted to your stuff and you feel good about yourself because of what you have and you look down on others because of what they don't have when you see someone driving a beat-up old Toyota or living in a rundown house you feel better about yourself because you look down on them would you say would they say you're faithfully distinct or rather camouflaged You know, teenagers 
young people, just had you specially in mind this week. Because these can be big temptations for you and for all of us. To be a camouflage Christian, to be a chameleon disciple, just blending in. And Daniel chapter 1 is asking you, God is asking you, will you be faithfully distinct as an exile in this world? One, one who says no to this world's values and this world's priorities as a yes to God. That's how Eugene Peterson describes repentance. I think it's helpful. Repentance, he said, is a no that is a yes to God. I want to ask you teenagers, young people, is there a no you need to say to this world as a yes to God right now? That's the tension. What about the climax and resolution? Thirdly, let's call it a faithful God in a foreign land. A faithful God, thirdly, in a foreign land. Look at verse 15. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So eat your vegetables, kids. It's a quiet miracle. Only 10 days, not a long time, only 10 days. And Daniel and friends look better and healthier than all the others. But again, the point is not the diet. The point is what God is doing here. That becomes clearer as we read on verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave. God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams, as we'll see. Now that's the third time in this chapter that we see the Lord gave or God gave. In these Old Testament narratives, when there's repetition, that's often an emphasis. The third time we see the Lord gave. What God gave. First, back in verse 2, right? The Lord gave, gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. That's God's sovereignty. His absolute reign and rule. I give you, Jehoiakim, into the hands of your enemy as expression of judgment. That's God acting in his sovereignty. Second time you see this, verse 9. God gave, God gave Daniel favor and compassion. That's God's faithfulness right there. His faithful love. The word translated favor is a Hebrew word that's good to know. The word hesed means God's loyal love. His faithful, committed, covenantal love or favor. Daniel and his friends are allowed to eat their distinct diet because God was faithful in his loyal love toward them. Third time now, third time, verse 17. God gave, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. 
God's faithfulness again, that he is present, present with Daniel and his friends, even while enrolled in Babylon University. Even in a difficult, pagan, secular environment, even in this time of exile for them, God was saying, I am present with you. I am present, I am with you, I'll be faithful here. Skill, wisdom, whatever you need. Three times in this chapter, it's the Lord gave or God gave. Once in the setting, once in the tension, once in the climax, showing us what? That God's the main character, God's the main actor, God's the hero of the story, that he is present with these exiles, sovereignly ruling over these exiles, and he will be faithful to them in their exile. And Daniel would serve these Babylonian kings for the rest of his life. He never goes home. Even after the Persians conquer the Babylonians in 539, he served these kings well. Look at verse 20. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, found them, Daniel and his friends, ten times better. Ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Ten times better. In other words, these suffering exiles, they would learn it's possible to do what the prophet Jeremiah told them to do. It's possible for them to do in exile what Jeremiah told them to do in exile. In Jeremiah 29, he said, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, in its shalom, in its peace, in its well-being, you will find your welfare. Seek the well-being of the pagan, secular society into which I have sent you into exile. Be faithful like that because our God is still faithful to us. That's the point to the exiles. That's the point to us exiles today. Not withdrawing into a fortress and not just blending in as a chameleon staying distinct staying distinct distinct to be what Jesus called us to be salt and light salty salt and bright light salt for a decaying world light into a dark world we can be faithfully distinct like that because our God says I am present I am sovereign. I will be faithful to you, my people, my exiles. It's not easy, is it, being in exile today? Secular society does not applaud you. The world, the flesh, and the devil are arrayed against us. But our God, listen, our God will be faithful to meet us and help us. That's the point. That God's faithfulness enables us to be faithfully distinct in this world. Or maybe better yet, God's faithfulness in Christ enables us to be faithfully distinct in this world. I like how that sounds. So I'm going to say it one more time. 
God's faithfulness in Christ enables us, enables you and me to be faithfully distinct in this world. You see, God was here acting to preserve his distinct people because six centuries later, through this people, he would bring forth the Messiah, the Savior for all people. These exiles did not realize in their suffering and pain, in their discouragement and disillusionment, they did not realize that God was faithfully at work the entire time to accomplish his saving purposes in Christ. But he was. And if your life has been swept up into those saving purposes in Christ, then you have experienced his faithfulness in the most profound way possible. You know the greatest sense in which God gave, that he gave his one and only son. To live and die and rise in our place as our substitute to bring us to God. The real defilement is not with our food, it's with our sin. True contamination flows out of our hearts. That's what Jesus taught. Our contamination is more in here than out there. But Christ, Christ took our defilement. Christ bore the penalty for our defilement. He cleanses us from our contamination in full. And in all the ways we are not faithful, in all the ways we fail to be faithfully distinct, he was already faithful in our place. So, please understand, God is acting here to preserve a distinct people to one day bring forth your Savior. That's the greatest proof that he will be faithful to you. So, I want to ask, where do you need God's faithfulness in Christ fueling your faithfulness right now? Where do you need to believe that he is, he is present like this and, and sovereign like this? That he is faithful, faithful like this so that you can be faithfully distinct in this world. Where is that for you? Joshua and I are reading together, a, we just finished a, a book on leadership by Paul Tripp. And he mentions in the final chapter that we can be Presence amnesiacs. Presence amnesiacs. He's saying we forget. We forget that God is present, that he's ruling over all. He'll be faithful to us in Christ. We forget that. We are presence amnesiacs. Where are you forgetting like that? And need to remember right now he's present. Be faithful. So you can be faithfully distinct. Maybe it's a pattern of sin you want to indulge. Isn't, isn't a present and faithful God far more satisfying? Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's who he is for you right now in Christ. Present, sovereign, and will be faithful to you so that you can be faithfully distinct in this world. Or think about our sexuality. 
You don't need, you don't need the fake intimacy of pornography. You don't need to live in a fantasy world about someone who's not your spouse. He is with you and faithful to you and has grace to meet you in every time of need, including that one. Grace to help you live faithfully distinct unto him in that area too. Or think about that, that temptation we face to love money. Romans 8 tells us, He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not with Him graciously give us all things? He will provide all you need for life and godliness. So you can trust Him. Not your money. You can trust Him to live a distinct life in that realm until He brings you home. In this way, we will be salty salt. We will be bright lights. We will be faithfully distinct as His people. Friends, I hope you're feeling the power already of story. These stories in the book of Daniel. Let this story teach us and transform us for God's faithfulness in Christ enables us to live and be faithfully distinct as exiles right here. Let's pray to him and ask for his help. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. I want to give you a moment to respond to God. I want to give you a moment to call upon Christ if you've not yet done so. To believe on him to take away your sins. And bring you to God. That you'd experience God's faithfulness that way. Turning to Christ and trusting in Him as your only hope to take away your guilt and your shame. And to bring you into a living relationship with God Himself. I urge you right now to turn to Christ. And hope in, trust only in his life, death, and resurrection to bring you to God. And you will. I want to urge you who are believing to trust God right now. Maybe acknowledge where you've been a presence amnesiac. And trust God that he will be faithful to you in exactly the ways you need. To be faithfully distinct in this world. He wants to meet you. He loves you. He wants to help you. He sent His Son for you. If there's a, a no you need to say as a yes to God, acknowledge that to Him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for 
what may be a familiar yet profound story. In all the ways we forget, you are still there. You were there with exiles in the sixth century BC. You're here right now with exiles in the 21st century. You're faithful. Help us to trust you that way. That you are all we need. And will meet us in every way we need. For life and godliness. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.